History of England, Chapter 11, Part 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marco. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 11, Part 12. At length the Comprehension Bill was sent down to the Commons. There it would easily have been carried by two to one, if it had been supported by all the friends of religious liberty. But on this subject the high churchmen could count on the support of a large body of low churchmen. Those members who wished well to Nottingham's plan saw that they were outnumbered, and despairing of a victory began to meditate a retreat. Just at this time a suggestion was thrown out which united all suffrages. The ancient usage was that a convocation should be summoned together with a parliament, and it might well be argued that, if ever the advice of a convocation could be needed, it must be when the changes in ritual and discipline of the church were under consideration. But in consequence of the irregular manner in which the estates of the realm had been brought together during the vacancy of the throne, there was no convocation. It was proposed that the House should advise the King to take measures for supplying this defect, and that the fate of the Comprehension Bill should not be decided till the clergy had had an opportunity of declaring their opinion through the ancient and legitimate organ. This proposition was received with general acclamation. The Tories were well pleased to see such honor done to the priesthood. Those Whigs who were against the Comprehension Bill were well pleased to see it laid aside, certainly for a year, probably forever. Those Whigs who were for the Comprehension Bill were well pleased to escape without a defeat. Many of them, indeed, were not without hopes that mild and liberal councils might prevail in the ecclesiastical senate. An address requesting William to summon the convocation was voted without a division. The concurrence of the Lords was asked, the Lords concurred, the address was carried up to the throne by both houses. The King promised that he would, at a convenient season, do what his Parliament desired, and Nottingham's bill was not again mentioned. Many writers, imperfectly acquainted with the history of that age, have inferred from these proceedings that the House of Commons was an assembly of high churchmen, but nothing is more certain than that two-thirds of the members were either low churchmen or not churchmen at all. A very few days before this time an occurrence had taken place, unimportant in itself, but highly significant as an indication of the temper of the majority. It had been suggested that the House ought, in conformity with ancient usage, to adjourn over the Easter holidays. The Puritans and Latitudinarians objected. There was a sharp debate. The high churchmen did not venture to divide, and to the great scandal of many grave persons, the speaker took the chair at nine o'clock on Easter Monday, and there was a long and busy sitting. This, however, was by no means the strongest proof which the Commons gave, that they were far indeed from feeling extreme reverence or tenderness for the Anglican hierarchy. The bill for settling the oaths had just come down from the Lords, framed in a manner favorable to the clergy. All lay functionaries were required to swear fealty to the king and queen on pain of expulsion from office. But it was provided that every divine who already held a benefice might continue to hold it without swearing, unless the government should see reason to call on him specially for an assurance of his loyalty. Burnett had, partly no doubt from the good nature and generosity which belonged to his character, and partly from a desire to conciliate his brethren, supported this arrangement in the upper house with great energy. But in the lower house the feeling against the Jacobite priests was irresistibly strong. On the very day on which that house voted, without a division, the address requesting the king to summon the convocation, a clause was proposed and carried which required every person who held any ecclesiastical or academical preferment to take the oaths by the 1st of August, 1689, on pain of suspension. Six months to be reckoned from that day were allowed to the non-juror for reconsideration. If on the 1st of February, 1690, he still continued obstinate, he was to be finally deprived. 
The bill, thus amended, was sent back to the Lords. The Lords adhered to their original resolution. Conference after conference was held. Compromise after compromise was suggested. From the imperfect reports which have come down to us, it appears that every argument in favor of lenity was forcibly urged by Burnet. But the Commons were firm. Time pressed. The unsettled state of the law caused inconvenience in every department of the public service, and the peers very reluctantly gave way. They at the same time added a clause empowering the king to bestow pecuniary allowances out of the forfeited benefices on a few non-juring clergymen. The number of clergymen thus favored was not to exceed twelve. The allowance was not to exceed one-third of the income forfeited. Some zealous Whigs were unwilling to grant even this indulgence, but the Commons were content with the victory which they had won, and justly thought it would be ungracious to refuse so slight a concession. These debates were interrupted, during a short time, by the festivities and solemnities of the coronation. When the day fixed for that great ceremony drew near, the House of Commons resolved itself into a committee for the purpose of settling the form of the words in which our sovereigns were thenceforward to enter into covenant with the nation. All parties were agreed as to the propriety of requiring the king to swear that in temporal matters he would govern according to law and would execute justice in mercy. But about the terms of the oath which related to the spiritual institutions of the realm there was much debate. Should the chief magistrate promise simply to maintain the Protestant religion established by law, or should he promise to maintain that religion as it should be hereafter established by law? The majority preferred the former phrase. The latter phrase was preferred by those Whigs who were for a comprehension. But it was universally admitted that the two phrases really meant the same thing, and that the oath, however it might be worded, would bind the sovereign in his executive capacity only. This was indeed evident from the very nature of the transaction. Any compact may be annulled by the free consent of the party who alone is entitled to claim the performance. It was never doubted by the most rigid casuist that a debtor who had bound himself under the most awful imprecations to pay a debt may lawfully withhold payment if the creditor is willing to cancel the obligation. And it is equally clear that no assurance exacted from a king by the estates of his realm can bind him to refuse compliance with what may at a future time be the wish of those estates. A bill was drawn up in conformity with the resolutions of the committee, and was rapidly passed through every stage. After the third reading, a foolish man stood up to propose a rider, declaring that the oath was not meant to restrain the sovereign from consenting to any change in the ceremonial of the church, provided always that episcopacy and a written form of prayer were retained. The gross absurdity of this motion was exposed by several eminent members. Such a clause, they justly remarked, would bind the king under pretense of setting him free. The coronation oath, they said, was never intended to trammel him in his legislative capacity. Leave that oath as it is now drawn, and no prince can misunderstand it. No prince can seriously imagine that the two houses mean to exact from him a promise that he will put a veto on laws which they may hereafter think necessary to the well-being of the country. Or, if any prince should so strangely misapprehend the nature of the contract between him and his subjects, any divine, any lawyer, to whose advice he may have recourse, will set his mind at ease. But if this rider should pass, it will be impossible to deny that the coronation oath is meant to prevent the king from giving his assent to bills which may be presented to him by the lords and commons, and the most serious inconvenience may follow. These arguments were felt to be unanswerable, and the proviso was rejected without a division. Every person who has read these debates must be fully convinced that the statesmen who framed the coronation oath did not mean to bind the king in his legislative capacity. Unhappily, more than a hundred years later, a scruple which those statesmen thought too absurd to be seriously entertained by any human being found its way into a mind honest indeed and religious, but narrow and obstinate by nature, and at once debilitated and excited by disease.
Seldom, indeed, have the ambition and perfidy of tyrants produced evils greater than those which were brought on our country by that fatal conscientiousness. A conjuncture singularly auspicious, a conjuncture at which wisdom and justice might perhaps have reconciled races and sects long hostile, and might have made the British islands one truly united kingdom, was suffered to pass away. The opportunity, once lost, returned no more. Two generations of public men have since labored with imperfect success to repair the error which was then committed, nor is it improbable that some of the penalties of that error may continue to afflict a remote posterity. The bill by which the oath was settled passed the upper house without amendment. All the preparations were complete, and on the 11th of April the coronation took place. In some things it differed from ordinary coronations. The representatives of the people attended the ceremony in a body, and were sumptuously feasted in the exchequer chamber. Mary, being not merely queen consort, but also queen regnant, was inaugurated in all things like a king, was girt with the sword, lifted up into the throne, and presented with the Bible, the spurs, and the orb. Of the temporal grandees of the realm and of their wives and daughters, the muster was great and splendid. None could be surprised that the Whig aristocracy should swell the triumph of Whig principles. But the Jacobites saw with concern that many lords who had voted for a regency bore a conspicuous part in the ceremonial. The king's crown was carried by Grafton, the queen's by Somerset. The pointed sword, emblematical of temporal justice, was borne by Pembroke. Ormond was Lord High Constable for the day, and rode up the hall on the right hand of the hereditary champion, who thrice flung down his glove on the pavement, and thrice defied to mortal combat the false traitor who should gainsay the title of William and Mary. Among the noble damsels who supported the gorgeous train of the queen was her beautiful and gentle cousin, the Lady Henrietta Hyde, whose father, Rochester, had to the last contended against the resolution which declared the throne vacant. The show of bishops, indeed, was scanty. The primate did not make his appearance, and his place was supplied by Compton. On the side of Compton, the patent was carried by Lloyd, Bishop of St. Asaph, eminent among the seven confessors of the preceding year. On the other side, Spratt, Bishop of Rochester, lately a member of the High Commission, had charge of the chalice. Burnet, the junior prelate, preached with all his wonted ability, and more than his wonted taste and judgment. His grave and eloquent discourse was polluted neither by adulation nor by malignity. He is said to have been greatly applauded, and it may well be believed that the animated peroration in which he implored heaven to bless the royal pair with long life and mutual love, with obedient subjects, wise counselors, and faithful allies, with gallant fleets and armies, with victory, with peace, and finally with crowns more glorious and more durable than those which then glinted on the altar of the abbey, drew forth the loudest hums of the commons. On the whole, the ceremony went off well, and produced something like a revival, faint indeed and transient, of the enthusiasm of the preceding December. The day was, in London and in many other places, a day of general rejoicing. The churches were filled in the morning, the afternoon was spent in sport and carousing, and at night bonfires were lighted, rockets discharged, and windows lighted up. The Jacobites, however, contrived to discover, or to invent, abundant matter for scurrility and sarcasm. They complained bitterly that the way from the hall to the western door of the abbey had been lined by Dutch soldiers. Was it seemly that an English king should enter into the most solemn of engagements with the English nation behind a triple hedge of foreign swords and bayonets? Little affrays, such as at every great pageant, almost inevitably take place between those who are eager to see the show and those whose business it is to keep the communications clear, were exaggerated with all the artifices of rhetoric. One of the alien mercenaries had backed his horse against an honest citizen who pressed forward to catch a glimpse of the royal canopy. Another had rudely pushed back a woman with the butt-end of his musket. 
On such grounds as these, the strangers were compared to those Lord Danes whose insolence in the old time had provoked the Anglo-Saxon population to insurrection and massacre. But there was no more fertile theme for censure than the coronation medal, which really was absurd in design and mean in execution. A chariot appeared conspicuous on the reverse, and plain people were at a loss to understand what this emblem had to do with William and Mary. The disaffected wits solved the difficulty by suggesting that the artist meant to allude to that chariot which a Roman princess, lost to all filial affection and blindly devoted to the interests of an ambitious husband, drove over the still warm remains of her father. Honors were, as usual, liberally bestowed at this festive season. Three garters, which happened to be at the disposal of the crown, were given to Devonshire, Ormond, and Schomburg. Prince George was created Duke of Cumberland. Several eminent men took new appellations by which they must henceforward be designated. Danby became Marcus of Caermarthen, Churchill, Earl of Marlborough, and Bentinck, Earl of Portland. Mardant was made Earl of Monmouth, not without some murmuring on the part of old exclusionists, who still remembered with fondness their Protestant duke, and who had hoped that his attainder would be reverse, and that his title would be borne by his descendants. It was remarked that the name of Halifax did not appear in the list of promotions. None could doubt that he might easily have obtained either a blue ribbon or a ducal coronet, and though he was honorably distinguished from most of his contemporaries by his scorn of illicit gain, it was well known that he desired honorary distinctions with a greediness of which he was himself ashamed and which was unworthy of his fine understanding. The truth is that his ambition was at this time chilled by his fears. To those whom he trusted, he hinted his apprehensions that evil times were at hand. The king's life was not worth a year's purchase, the government was disjointed, the clergy and the army disaffected, the parliament torn by factions, civil war was already raging in one part of the empire, foreign war was impending. At such a moment a minister, whether Whig or Tory, might well be uneasy, but neither Whig nor Tory had so much to fear as the trimmer, who might not improbably find himself the common mark at which both parties would take aim. For these reasons Halifax determined to avoid all ostentation of power and influence, to disarm envy by a studied show of moderation, and to attach to himself by civilities and benefits persons whose gratitude might be useful in the event of a counter-revolution. The next three months, he said, would be the time of trial. If the government got safe through the summer, it would probably stand. End of chapter 11, part 12